The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. So, as we continue the sermon series of the King's Sermon, also known as the Sermon on the Mount, and you know, as I continue to study it, and study, try to do verse by verse, I find myself literally just overwhelmed by the truth that's in it. I feel like I come here and all you see is just the tip of an iceberg. Sometimes I point out my sermon and then I'm realizing that it's 30 pages long. I've got to condense it a little bit because there's so, so much that's happening that's also happening in my heart and mind. And really, what Jesus is talking about here is the keys to the kingdom, and not just how you get into the kingdom, but your attitudes, or your attitudes that should be, after you get into the kingdom. And you know, and the more you study it, the more you look at it from the perspective, it's kind of everything is upside down. It's just completely opposite of what we would expect. Um, and you see the Jews, I was thinking about how weird or strange it is for us to hear this message, you know, as we were reading it, but how strange and weird it was for those people that were receiving it the same t- uh, of Jesus' day, because the Jews long been waiting for a kingdom of God to come. They've been waiting for their Messiah. The Messiah was going to come. They believed, and he would establish his kingdom on earth, and he would set up the promised kingdom, which all prophets and uh, had spoken of, and the Old Testament is very clear on it. There will be, there's a kingdom, and they anticipated it greatly. And here is the most wonderful thing that happened. John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, announced that the king has come. And this king, Lord Jesus Christ, and what was his message? The kingdom of Heaven is at hand. So there's this excitement going on. You know, all the Israel came and started looking up to Jesus and listening to Jesus. What is this, what is this guy doing all these miraculous works and all that kind of stuff? Nobody spoke like he did. And you know, and we read in Mark 1, 14 and 15, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of kingdom of God And then he's saying this, you know, they're anticipating, they're waiting, and he says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent repent and believe in the gospel. This wonder worker, miracle worker, that they've never seen before, did things like no other man did, and surely this guy was it. This is the Messiah. And you know, there's different groups that expected that the kingdom would come in different ways. The zealots were the, the, the military kind. They thought that the king's going to come and they're going to overthrow Rome or whatever, who's over, ever occupying them with some kind of uh, military power. Then you know, of course, there's also the Pharisees who dominated the scene in the New Testament and their expectation with Messiah would come, but he would do it more miraculously, not, you know, militarily, some kind of thing, some kind of, God's just going to wipe everybody out, things that he did in the Old Testament. In any case, even his disciples were bought into this whole 
mess. In Acts 1, 6, we think they, they come together and ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And I believe it's in Luke 9, 46, when they're actually argued who's going to be the greatest, right? Who's going to be on his left side, right side of the kingdom? Because they've been anticipating this such a long time. And the way Jesus started talking on the Sermon on the Mount, can you imagine their reaction? They expected a Messiah to come in a white charger, right? On a white horse. He would slap his sword and all of a sudden wipe out the enemy and so forth, and they're going to be free. But Jesus comes and says, these are the real kingdom citizens. And we read in Matthew 5, let's go back, start with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In our text for today, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This world will not say, blessed are the meek. Meekness is weakness in our world. And it sounds like for these you know, three verses, sounds more like a kingdom of sissies, doesn't it? Poor in spirit, crying all the time, meek. People of this world say, blessed are the mighty men, the blessed are the muscle man, mental man, the money man, anything except meek. And the world's point of view, meekness is the first step toward failure. Unless you toot your own horn, wave your own flag, promote your own goals, you will never get to any place in this competitive world. Because we think meekness is weakness. And I looked up the word meek in the Webster Dictionary. It's defined it as deficient in spirit and courage, not violent or strong. But here Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what is meekness? Well, you see in the verse 5, it follows two other things, right? We talked about poor in spirit and mourning. So whatever meekness is, it follows those two things. Meekness comes out of the hearts of the broken of spirit and those who are in mourning. And also the Greek word that was used here, it was not... It was not something that they didn't know about. It was a very familiar word to people in Jesus' day. They used it to describe something that's soothing, soothing medicine. Here's a patient who's wrestling with fever, for example, and doctor gives him medication, and that quiets him down, relieves the burning. The patient can fall asleep. It also used as a gentle breeze. Anybody been ever exhausted on a hot day and felt that cooling breeze coming? It's just so refreshing, right? I had the experience of that last Friday. You know, it was a very nice outside, and I just closed my eyes and let the breeze come, you know, and I was hoping my wife would come out with a lemonade. But instead, she comes out and says, you're going to just sit there, or are you going to go work on your sermon? It also used for farmers. You know, if the horse, for example, a colt, 
has to be broken. It cannot fulfill its function, so it has to be meek. There's this power of the cold. It has to be channeled so it can be constructive and do work. And all of these things really illustrate power because that's what they have in common. Medicine has the power to work in the body to calm your nerves, right? Too much medicine can also be harmful. A breeze can feel relaxing and nice, but if you get a hurricane, it becomes destructive. You ever watch those cowboys ride those bucking broncos? Or It's a powerful animal. It's out of control. But the medicine, the wind, the horse must keep their power under control. Otherwise, they'll do damage. They'll do damage. Proper dosage of medicine is necessary to promote healing. You guys ever uh, seen those commercials, old commercials for Daryl McNabb, for those, cal- those football players for Campbell's Soup? They're out there knocking everybody down and so forth, and all of a sudden their mama comes out and tells them they need to eat their soup. Well, that's power under control. They become meek by some other authority. It's power under control. And if you look at Ephesians, really, it's kind of what Ephesians 4.26 is talking about. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. In other words, it has to be righteous anger. It has to be controlled anger for the purposes of God. Anybody can get angry, right? But to be angry at the right person, at the right degree, for the right reasons, not everybody can do that. And Proverbs 25, 28, 28 tells us, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a broken city without walls. That's power out of control. you got power, but there's nothing to contain it. It's like a destroyed city. And then if you go to Proverbs 16.32, it says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And then it continues and says, He who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. And you see these Beatitudes comes in order. First, there's the in spirit where you say I'm bankrupt you're really bankrupt you come to God and you realize you're bankrupt then you mourn after our condition comes the contrition we mourn of that you say God have mercy on me we see who we truly are remember David prayed I was born in sin my mother conceived me this way we repent of it and then meekness It talks about when I come to a place where I come to the Lord and say, I place you, place myself under your control. I'm not weak, I'm meek. I have a new master. A horse that's been meeked is running around in the wild, right? But now you have a brittle and a bit, a saddle. So what Jesus is saying here, he doesn't want the horses to run wild. He doesn't want to cripple the horses, but he wants to get the horse under control. And look at it. The great example of that is in Romans 6.19. It says this, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, just as you presented your members, talking about your hands, your eyes, your feet, your tongue, presented your members as slaves to uncleanness, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, That is, you used to be yielded to Satan. And then he says, now 
present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That is, we yield. We yield. So it's power under the control. Same, same eyes, same ears, same tongue, same legs, same strength. Actually, you get even more strength. You're still a fighter, but what are you fighting now? You're fighting the devil, that crowd, because you're being controlled by the Holy Spirit. He puts that bit into your life. Puts a saddle, and he says, blessed are those that have submitted, that have yielded. And you know, there's some displays of meekness and illustrations that I want to look at in the Bible. First one would be Abraham. If you think about Abraham, uh, when he left Ur, he brought his nephew Lot along with him. Now think about it. Abraham had the covenant. He had all the promises from God. God said, I'm going to give you the land. All the land is yours and so forth. But there was a dispute. And we find this in Genesis 13:7, And it says, and there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So they're Servants, or whatever you want to call them, workers, started arguing. And if you were Abraham, what would you have done? Certainly, Abraham had the authority to tell Lot, back up your stuff and take a hike. Right? He, was, he had the authority. And Lot was just simply a hitchhiker going along for the ride. But look at Abraham. He had power, but he kept that power under control. He exercised meekness. And in verse 8 and 9, it says this, So Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. It is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Now, if Abraham was most like many of us, I'm sure we would have said, I'm the elder in this clan, right? We have those dynamic personalities that explode all the time. If somebody offends us, we use a cannon to kill a mosquito. Because we have that attitude. We're exercising leadership. Hey, I'm in charge here. But to God, that would be committing a sin. Abraham had the power, but his power was under control, and he gave Lot the first choice. He had power, but he never used it in defense of himself. It was a beautiful submission to God because in his heart, he knew God was in control. God was in control over everything. If Lot went to the left, God would work it out. If he went to the right... God would work it out. He had the right and power, but he never used it for his benefit because Abraham was surrendered to God. He was not afraid to submit to Lot because I'm submitting to God. And Abraham knew that his own inheritance, the land, the earth, was secure. He was secured in the Lord in his promise, so no decision on his nephew's part would ever, ever rob him of it And anything that he did, God made a promise. So Abraham had the power, but his power was under control, and God kept his promise. 
to Abraham. Another illustration I'm sure you're all familiar with is Joseph, right? His whole life is pretty much meekness. Mistreated by his brothers, sold to Egypt as a slave, then lied about by his master's wife and put into prison. But what happened? One day he became the prime minister of Egypt, right? Now that his master and his wife are actually reporting to Joseph now. You would think he would go back and avenge, right? But we never find anything of such in the Scripture. And when his brothers showed up begging for food, Joseph could have refused or even punished them. But there was a certain way that he dealt with it, and they repented of their sin. They were truly repentant. And Joseph did not hurt them, because if you read that story, he said, you meant it for evil, but God had different plans. He was submitted to God. And you know the other illustration we talked about David last Sunday a little bit. Remember David? In the beginning of his life, his younger life, where God said, you're going to be king, Saul was hunting him down, right? He wanted to kill David. And one day, Saul walks into a cave where David and his men just happened to be hiding. And his men were saying, this is your opportunity, David. Go kill him. Go kill him. But that was not David's reaction. He cut part of his robe, even cutting that, he felt guilty because he knew if God wants me to be king and he's anointed me to be king, I will be king. He was surrendered to God. And we talked about the story when his son Absalom took over. And one during this difficult time, one of Saul's men actually was cursing at David, throwing stones as he was leaving the palace. In 2 Samuel 69, it says this, his, this is, you know, his nephew says, David's nephew says, I'm going to go cut off his head. Just give me, give me your word. And uh, in verse 9, you find these words, Then Abshani, the son of Zerai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord? Please let me go over and take over his head. That'll be a proper thing to do, right? That's the bodyguard of David. Somebody's being rude and disrespectful to the king. But in verse 10, David says this, But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerai? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? He didn't go over there and just try to defend himself. And our greatest example of meekness is our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine the power God, do you remember when they came to arrest him in the garden and they were looking for Jesus and he just said, it's me, and everybody just fell down? Nobody knew what was happening. Imagine the power. But this, in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but what? He committed himself to him. Who is him? The Father who judges righteously. And folks, it took more power for Jesus to submit than for Peter to draw out that sword that night. Peter's actions were natural. <laughs> Lord's actions were supernatural. Jesus was submitting to his father. Think of Paul, 
Another example of Paul, the power that Paul possessed when he was Saul of Tarsus. He used his power to persecute, to even kill. And then we find these words in Acts 26, 14. It says, when they all had fallen to the ground, this is when God, Jesus, stopped them on the way to Damascus. I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. There was a Greek proverb that was familiar to this, and all the Jews knew about it when you lived in agriculture. There was an ox, goat, and there was a stick, an iron stick. It was very pointy, and sometimes when you want to steer the animal in a different direction, you point it. But sometimes this animal would rebel, and the more it will rebel, the more really it kind of suffered. So he's suggesting here to Paul, you're like a wild animal that's never been broken. How long are you going to be doing this? And God broke him, and there came into his life this spirit of meekness. As a Christian and an apostle, now Paul had more authority and power than he had before. But now he's using that power. He's using all those things for good and for the glory of God. He had learned meekness. And look what he writes to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. And he says this, Now I, Paul, myself, I am pleading with you. You think Paul was pleading with anybody prior to his conversion? But not only that, Look how he's pleading, pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence I'm lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold towards you. And Jesus also exercised power under control. Folks, the greatest example. He could have summoned tons of legions of angels for his protection. But in Philippians 2 and 8, it says, And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient again, who is he becoming obedient to? Who is being meek? Who is he under control? To the point of death and even the death of the cross? To his father, his father's will? That's meekness. But also, let me point out, it's important about meekness. You see, all these people, they didn't really defend themselves, right? Jesus didn't defend himself. Paul didn't defend himself. But when they desecrated his father's temple, what did Jesus do? He took out a whip, cleaned it up. He always talked and blasted the hypocrites, the Pharisees. He condemned the false leaders of Israel. He uttered and spoke judgments on Israel and people who would not repent. So meekness is not necessarily being this little mousy or mild or never responding, but it's never in de defense of yourself. I've been offended. It's defending God. We mourn over our sins. We know we deserve nothing. We're bankrupt. There's nothing to defend here. Nothing good dwells in me. But when you see the holiness of God, you see the holiness of God, you die defending his holy name. So that's what meekness 
kind of defines. Again, I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg here. But if you look again in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How do you develop this meekness? Well, you see, what Jesus was saying in the Sermon in the Mount is not really anything new to the Jesus people of that time if they really studied the Scriptures. Because all he's doing is echoing here Psalm 37. If you look at Psalm 37, verse 3, it says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So if you underline, if you're following along in your Bible, trust in the Lord. Then verse 5, it says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And then verse 7, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of men who brings wicked schemes to pass. Trust in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Rest in the Lord. What is all that talking about? That is talking about our submission to God. This is the person who literally gives up his power, gives up his agenda, gives up his will, gives up his purposes, his goals, his dreams, his ambition under divine control of God. All those are the attitudes of the meek. You just give up everything for the purposes of God. You trust in him. They delight in him. They commit their way to him. They rest in him. They do not fret. You know, if somebody's becoming more richer or more prosper than he is, they just give everything to God. Delight, commit, rest. And what's the outcome? If you look at verse 11 or Psalm 37, it kind of says the same thing we're studying in verse 5 of Matthew. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. That's the result. They shall inherit the earth, which simply means that they do not have anything to be afraid of, of because God is in complete control. We don't have to be afraid of the circumstances that we're in right now. Everybody's freaking out and so forth, watching the news. You think it's like, you know, something new to God? Oh, I didn't know coronavirus is going to show up. I didn't know Christians going to start be start getting persecuted in America. I didn't know this was going to happen. You think it's a surprise to God? No. So if God is in control, why are we freaking out? Because we haven't fully been submitted to God. And remember the sequence. The only way you're going to have meekness is when you're poor in spirit. When you realize you're totally bankrupt. Then you mourn. You're heartbroken over it. Not just remorse. Remember we talked about the difference when the remorse. You're broken hearted. A meek horse is a broken horse. And folks, you know, sometimes we come to church. Again, as I said last Sunday, we think we did a pastor a favor or God a wild favor that we showed up to church and somehow we get the idea that we do a little check mark. But when we walk out of here, the problem is we still don't see ourselves as completely bankrupt and we still don't mourn over our sins, over the sins of the world and what was ha- what's happening in the world. And if you're ready to be yielded to Jesus Christ this morning, there's lots of 
ways the Bible instructs, but I'm just going to give you three. You must be submitted to God. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, I'm sure most of you heard this. It says, Come to me, all you who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Now, that word gentle in the original language, it means meek. So if you look at the King James Version, it will tell you that it's meek. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy if my burden is light. So here's a picture of two oxen. They're pulling together. The yoke is on one, and the yoke is on the other. These two oxen are pulling side by side. And Jesus is saying, I want you to take my yoke and put it on yourself. Because it's no longer you, but it's you and Jesus. Whenever the yoke is on two oxen, you ever seen those oxen plow a field? One oxen is the lead. In this case, it's Jesus. And Jesus says, therefore, you follow me. Take my yoke. You will learn from me. And he says, my yoke is easy. It fits just right. And you know, Christianity is something, you know, people think that we have to do. It's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. It's a privilege. And I mean, because God loves us so incredibly, he says, my yoke is easy. Ever hear anybody say, Christian, life is a hard life? And if we think about it, we would say, like, yes, it is. But if we become meek and we submit, really, it's an easy life. Because you come to a point where you realize everything's under God's control. Everything's under God's control. And really, the Bible tells us that the way of the transgressor, the way of the unfaithful is hard. Not a Christian life. Proverbs 13.5 says, Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't pull when Jesus is leading and he's next to you. It doesn't mean that there's no work to do. There's plenty of work to do. It doesn't say my yoke is lazy, right? It says it's easy. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. So if we need to be meek, if we want to be desired to be meek, there's a decision that you have to make. You see, as a pastor, I can beg you to come to Jesus and all those things, but, but you're going to have to take his yoke. You're going to have to learn from him. You have to make that decision. And Jesus Christ says, first thing, come to me. Folks, he doesn't say come to a denomination or come to Christianity or Christianese. You have to learn all those languages and so forth. He says, come to me, and you'll find rest unto your souls. Then you have to be responsive. We talked about this book being the authority, complete authority, when we talked about the Let's Talk Church series. You must be responsive to his word. In James 1, 21, it says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And I've talked about this before. Not only you receive the Son of God, you must respond to his word with meekness. That is, let the word of God control your life. That's the brittle and that's the bit of a horse. You receive it with 
meekness, the implanted word. And I told you about sometimes how people try to study the word of God, right? They, they just say, hey, I'm going to study the word of God. They get themselves a dictionary. They get themselves some concordance. They get a legal pad, paper, pen, and they start writing things out and so forth. And that's not how you study the word of God. You don't just go in there and try to pull something out. Where it says receive with meekness, it talks about the fact as you welcome it into your life. You're welcome, the Word of God. You can't just go in and you can learn the kings of the Bible, but you never get the king of kings. You can learn facts. You can get facts, but you'll never receive it into your life because maybe you want to study it. There's lots of people who study the Word of God for their pride so they can be sound intelligent or be more knowing than their teacher or something like that. But your spirit has never been broken. And the word that used here is to welcome it with humility. Have you ever sat down? And maybe this is why we don't study the Word of God as we should. Have you ever sat down and opened it and say, I'm going to study the Word of God, and whatever it says, I'm going to do? Right? But sometimes we just want to parade a pastor in mind. Well, I accept this. I agree with this, but I don't agree with this. Right? We start kind of accepting things and other things we don't. But we need to receive it. And that's the power of the Word of God. You'll begin to see a change in your life, and you won't be a crippled horse, you won't be a wild horse, but you'll be a controlled horse. And most importantly, you need to be filled with the Spirit of God. Not only receive Jesus, submit to Jesus as the Son of God, not only bring in your life, but receive the word, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Because you see in Galatians 5, and I'm reading from the King James Version here, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and guess such there is no law. Fruit of the Spirit is meekness. And you see, meekness, it's not something that we manufacture. It's the fruit of the Spirit. When you say, Lord Jesus, I put your yoke upon me. When you say to the Word of God, I receive this Word with meekness, I welcome it into my life. When you say to the Spirit of God, I surrender work in me, then the Holy Spirit begins to take control. And that produces meekness. You can't produce that fruit. You'll bear that fruit. He produces that fruit in you. And you walk in spirit. And you will have meekness in your life and in your heart. So we talked about the definition. We looked at some examples, how we develop it. But what's the dynamic? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth talks about inheritance. Have you ever dreamed of receiving an inheritance? Remember there used to be when we first moved to America, there was a show, you know, when rich people die, sometimes they just leave inheritance and they show these people that are surprised because they didn't know they were receiving an inheritance. I don't know if you 
was kind of hoping my name would show up in one of those. But I figured they didn't know how to spell it. And I saw old comic strip. A man was sitting on the curb crying, and somebody said, what are you crying about? He said, well, I just read in the newspaper where Rockefeller had died, the richest man in the world. He said, well, you weren't related to him. He said, that's why I'm crying. We dream about some kind of inheritance. But does it mean that meek people will be prosperous in this world's goods? Well, apparently not. Because if you study the Bible, you'll see that Jesus was the meekest person in history. And Jesus possessed very little. Matter of fact, in Matthew 8, 20, he goes on to say, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Broke as a joke, right? So what does it mean, this inheritance? What does it mean when he's talking about inheriting the earth? Well, really, it speaks of now, and it speaks of thereafter and sweet and bye-bye, and in the nasty now and now. And the way I was thinking about it, because fully, if you think about it, he was addressing the Israelites. And really, till this day, Israel does not, I want to point out, Israel does not possess the entire land that God gave them. They will one day. They will. But if you look at here, and I think this is what it means to us, if you look at 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, in verses 21 and 23, it says this. Paul writes and says, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all things are yours. And then verse 23 says, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. So keep that in mind. It says, all things are yours. And then if you flip to 2 Corinthians 6.10, it says this, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor. Well, doesn't sound like you're inherited the earth, does it? Then it continues, yet making many rich. And here's the key thing, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Having nothing, yet possessing all things. And friends, I don't care what you do have, if you don't have blessedness, you can't enjoy them. And what, I don't care really what you don't have either, because if you have blessedness, you have all that you need. And, you know, I was thinking, what can a devil <clears throat> or the world or Satan can do to a person that really is like this? He says, all things are yours, and then having nothing, yet possessing all things. You see, the devil comes to us as what? He comes as a roaring lion, right? And we read that in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because the adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking to whom to devour, right? Or he comes as what? An angel of light. We read that in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no wonder, for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. So I was thinking, well, the devil can come to you and say, well, if you, like a lion, and he says, if you don't follow me, I'm going to take all your things away from you. Well, a person like this can say, you can't take anything away from me because I don't have anything. 
What are you going to take away from me? Having nothing. I don't have anything. Well, he says, that doesn't work. So I'll come to him as an angel of light, right? And I'll say, if you follow me, I'll give you all these things. Remember, he tried to do that when, with Jesus in the desert. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, just bow to me. All these things will be yours. Well, you say to the devil, how are you going to give me anything when I already have everything? What are you going to give me? What is he going to do? Possessing nothing, yet having all things. Not only in this life, but in the world to come. Have you ever thought about that prayer where we pray, O Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, and so forth. There's coming a time, folks, when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ, just like with Israelites. They will possess the entire land. They don't need to do anything, really. God will take care of it. There's an inheritance for us. We will come back with God. We'll be in part with Israel. And look at what Revelations 11.15 says. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We shall inherit the earth. It's all right. Somebody else is using it right now. It's mine. It's an escrow, right? So, folks, why is meekness is necessary? Meekness, we become teachable, become meek. It's necessary because it's necessary to be saved and it's necessary to enter the kingdom. And Psalm 149, 4 says, For the Lord taken pleasure in his people, he will beautify the meek with what? Salvation. And Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who is part of his first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God, of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. All the land will be yours. All the promises that God makes in the Bible will come to be fulfilled. So we look at the circumstances and we start to freak out, right? We start to freak out, and sometimes God tests our faith. He lets the devil come and say, I'm going to take all these things away. And then you don't become meek. You start following the devil in his ways. Meekness needs to be sought after because we don't tend to have it in our lives. And it's a trait that we need to pursue because it doesn't come to us naturally, does it? A meek person. And it's strength other control because the Bible concept here describes an animal that has been trained by his master. And wildly, wild, unruly animals, they're, they're worthless until they become trained and meek and teachable. They have teachable spirit become quiet. That's what it means when you receive the word with meekness, the implanted word. You're controlled by the Holy Spirit. You surrender. And Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11, says, 
But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness. And we'll talk about righteousness next Sunday. Godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. We need to follow these things. We need to seek these things in order for us to inherit the land. And in conclusion, I'm going to end here, is Matthew 19, verses 28 and 29. When we become meek, Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that in the, re- in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you have, have followed me, will sit, also sit on the twelve thrones. We will sit on the thrones. Inheritance of the land. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left his house, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So we not cling on to these possessions here, but to our heavenly possessions. You will receive a hundredfold. Not only that, you will receive inherit eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray for those who may not know you as Christ and Lord of their lives. Those who have not entered the kingdom, that they would come to this place of recognition where they recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, that they would grieve over their sins and in meekness and humility demonstrate a hunger, thirst for righteousness that only you can give. And Father, if we're Christians, help us renew our commitment to be humble and meek, to take pride out of our lives, self-will, our own purposes, our own plans, our petty desires, that we may be consumed with those things which bring you honor and glory. And may we realize our weakness and infirmity, only you, your, your power, through your power and through meekness, we can accomplish anything. And we want to yield to that. Use us in your ways, Father. And Father, as we leave this place this morning, I pray the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray, amen.